0: All right, tonight, we're going to finish up chapter 3 of the book of Lamentations, so I invite you to go there with me, and we will see what the Lord has planned for us tonight. You may remember, we're looking at five poems in Lamentations written by, I believe, Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah was uh, gifted in writing laments. He wrote the lament for Josiah, and uh, sang at Josiah's funeral. So uh, I believe this is him. And I think we see that through, through the text. And looking at this and Jeremiah's experiences together, I think we can see uh, those same things. So as we look at it, um, we see it, each poem, except for number five, is an acrostic. That means each verse begins with the next letter of the alphabet. And as they're written, they're written in a way so that one, two, three, four, five are all pointed. Um, if you looked at them on paper, they're all pointed toward chapter three. Chapter three is three times as long, 22 verses in the Hebrew alphabet, 22 verses in each of the chapters of Lamentations, except for chapter three, which has three times as many, 66 verses. So it becomes, if you will, if you looked at the picture, if you kind of drew out a graph, it would be like an arrowhead, right? And the tip of the arrow would be chapter 3. Chapter 3, speaking of um, the answer, finding the answer to our questions in suffering in the presence of God. Not that he answers us the wise, but finding that answer in his presence and in his faithfulness. If you remember in chapter, chapter 1, the poem, chapter 1 is a poem written from the perspective of a woman who's lost everything, there's nobody there to comfort her, and she's crying out in the middle of the street looking at the destruction around her. Poem number 2, 22 verses, the fall of Jerusalem and the result of God's wrath. And so we have this picture laid out. Poem 3 we talked about, three times longer, bringing forth the answer Uh, showing us the search for answers in our suffering. Uh, Poem number four, chapter four, is the siege of Jerusalem, and it's going to contrast how life used to be, the good old days, with the days now. What's life look like now And is a poem of contrast. Poem number five loses the acrostic, it loses the rhythm of the poetry, and it is a move um, from from grief into chaos, and it becomes an explosion uh, uh, moving into a prayer for God's mercy. And it ends in this paradox. The, as it cries out for God's mercy, the last verse is going to say, unless you have forsaken us. And then it ends. That's the end of the book of Lamentations. The question stays hanging in chapter 5, but that question is answered as we continue through the Word. Are we forsaken? No. No. And so this is something we'll see as we continue to work our way through. So tonight we're looking at the third part, or our third uh, message here in Lamentations 3, the search for answers. And this part is understanding the plans and purposes of God. And maybe more than that, maybe not necessarily understanding them, but accepting them. You ever had to accept God's plan, even if you didn't know why? So so that's a common theme in Scripture, because real life does not follow some kind of formula like Dr. Seuss. Where something happens, something goes south, and everything works out at the end, and everybody's happy, and they get their Christmas anyway, and the Grinch changes, and oh, that's not how real life is, is it? Real life doesn't, the Grinch stays rotten, you lose everything, and they stay lost, and you know, that's the, and really the poetry of the Bible kind of expresses that ideal, that this is how life under the sun, the... The the writer of Ecclesiastes, um, Kohelet, he he makes this proclamation that everything he everywhere he tried to find meaning under the sun, separate from finding meaning in God, ended up in vanity. And he he finds he finds no answers, and that really is expressed in Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry, especially Lamentations, is dealing with the hard things, the difficult parts of life. So. So, we have a search for answers, but it's focused on accepting God's purpose and plan, which was an issue for the people to whom Lamentations is written. Remember, Israel has gone into exile for disobedience and rebellion against God. And so, in going into exile, God is telling them, Accept my plan. I know the thoughts that I have toward you. That's what the Lord said, Jeremiah 29, right? I know the thoughts. I have toward you thoughts of good and not of evil. I'm not here to destroy you. If I was going to destroy you, you'd be gone. I'm giving you a future and a hope. It just doesn't always look like that. Because, you know, we like we like it how when everything works out a little smoother, less painful. But what reality shows us is humankind, especially according to the prophet Isaiah, learns best in the furnace of afflictions in the furnace of affliction our eyes lift up the book whole book of judges the whole book of judges does this cycle the cycle of oh life is good and i forgot who god is and then somebody comes and oppresses me oh i'm oppressed i feel like monty python when i say that and then three people who've seen monty python knows what i'm talking about and then and then the this oppression comes in and then there's a cry out to God, Lord, save us. And then God sends a judge and a judge comes and delivers the people out of their oppression back into the fruitful life and they get into the fruitful life and what do they do? Forget God. That's the entire book of Judges. Story after story after story after story. Then you enter into to the, the history of the time of the kings, and what does it look like? Just like the book of Judges. Over and over again. When we see that kind of thing repeated in literature, it is, it is laying for the foundational fact. We forget God when life is good. We remember God when life is bad. So there are often times in the world around us where we'll see that. But what the writer of Lamentations, what Jeremiah wants us to realize is in all of that, it's God's mercy and faithfulness because he wants you to look at him. This is not God's hatred and anger. This is God's mercy and grace that he's provided an opportunity for our eyes to lift up instead of just saying, oh, forget this. Let's wipe the slate clean start over with armadillos or something, mm-hmm. right? But he doesn't do that. So let's pick it up in verse 37 tonight. Verse 37, he says, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the most high that good and bad come? So why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? And the idea that he's laying out here in the beginning Stanzas of this poem is that the commands of the Lord are righteous. I was going to say the commands of the Lord are good, and in a sense, I think that's true. But sometimes the commands of the Lord are bad; they they bring calamity. But even though they brought calamity, they're righteous. Does that make sense? What I'm trying to say. So it's righteous. The Lord's commands are righteous, and our ability to comprehend how that works is limited because it's limited on our feelings. How do I feel, right? Doesn't your day, like when you start your day, your day kicks off, you're doing something, um, and, and let's say something goes south right away. Does it ruin your whole day often? Changes your attitude, you get a downward spiral, you're fighting that downward spiral all day, you know, and... And so the the same way, our feelings, our emotions, they hinder our ability to recognize the righteousness of God's commands, his working around us, the things that God is doing. Here's what the scripture says. I think think this is kind of a mantra from my life. I, I say that everything that enters into my life passes through the hands of a God who loves me. Now, I may not be able to reconcile all the pain. I know all the hard questions like, what about this? What about this? I don't have an answer for you. I just say that if it came into my life, it passed through God's hands and he loves me. And so we look at scriptures. The Bible says, in Amos 3, 6, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? The trumpet was an alarm, enemies coming. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? What did he write in Daniel? He says it's the Lord who raises up kings and brings down kingdoms, right? Isaiah 45 says this, speaking of the Lord, I form lark. I form lark. Let's try that again. (laughs) I form light. One day that's going to go bad. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things light, dark, good, what we would call evil. He's not talking about moral evil, but he's talking about bad things happening, right? Bad things that come. For example, the Babylonian army conquering Judah. The Lord says, this is all from me. And I think what what the prophets are saying through that is this, that The same God that brings judgment is the God who restores fortunes. He's the God who turns it around. God doesn't bring that judgment to bring a full end, but rather an attitude of repentance a change in the heart of his people, and then a restoration takes place, always through it all. So when we look at those divine proclamations of the Lord, whether for good, for our good, or for our ill, it is the Lord And the Lord speaks, and it happens. The Lord Lord will say, this far, no further. Right? There there will be an end to the wickedness, even of our nation now, which may be what we're facing now, that the Lord says, this far, no further. And then the the seeds that we have sown to the wind will reap the whirlwind. And and these are some of the things I think we see uh, happening around us. So we need to realize our perspective on that is often um, not reliable because our um, our emotion is so much a part of it. And so we we need to know when uh, somebody told me well actually Pastor Chuck Smith used to say whenever you're faced with something you don't understand, fall back on the things you know. There are things we know from Scripture, right? We know that God is love. The Bible describes him that. We also know that God is wrath and that God is justice. And so we have to fall back on the things we know. We know that God has a purpose. We know that God has a plan. It may not have been the one we would have picked or drew up. But it is God's. And so the lamenter in the middle of the city is looking up and he's he's saying at the last part of that, a section of poetry. He says, "Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins?" And really, the picture in the in the Hebrew is the idea of blame shifting. We do this better than any. Well, I don't think anything else does it, but we we do this a lot. Everything is somebody else's fault. Everything. It's I. When's the last time you saw somebody stand up and? political office somewhere and say you know what this is all my fault no this is democrats no this is the republicans no this is the religious people no this is the antifa no this is the the white supremacist whatever the bible the bible is saying why should a man blame shift why are you all pointing at everyone else when when judgment for sin comes it comes because you are guilty I am guilty. I am a sinner saved by grace. I am guilty as a sinner. And the blood of Jesus Christ makes me clean. So when God's judgment comes, that's just deserts. God's judgment is righteous. So I should not blame shift and point to someone else. What we see it in the first place in Genesis, right? Genesis chapter 3 Fall of Adam and Eve. What does Adam do? It's the woman you gave me, God. So he sort of blame shifts on a woman and God at the same time. Like, really, I wouldn't be in this position, God, if it wasn't for you. You didn't make me like this. So the reality is, here in in this poetry, he's saying, yeah, why should a guilty man complain about the punishment of his sin? And the, the the picture is why is he pointing out there? Why isn't he pointing in here? You get a great picture of it in Jonah, right? When the king comes off the throne, puts on sackcloth and ashes and repents and calls the nation to repent, taking responsibility and leading, leading those around now verse 40 he says so let us test and examine our ways now we've heard that right Paul says when we come together at the Lord's Supper this ought to be our heart right every time we come to the Lord's Supper the first thing we ought to do is examine our heart David says this often in his Psalms Lord search me try me see if there be any wicked way in me right lead me lead me to that place confession of sin forgiveness of sin we ought to be people who test and examine our ways Not point at others, test and examine our ways, and then what's he say? And return to the Lord. Same cycle. If you're standing in the middle of a destroyed city and everything's burnt around you and everything's gone and you're crying out and there's none to comfort you, the Lord says, examine yourself and return to the Lord. Return to the Lord, return to what the Lord has for you. And then he he calls us specifically, lift up your hearts. Where is it that our relationship with God begins? What does it say in Deuteronomy? Love the Lord your God with? That's where it starts, isn't it? So where do you think repentance starts? Same place, right? Same place. So he says, let us lift up our hearts and our hands. Now, for the Jew, the way the Jew would lift his hands in worship or in prayer, or in praise, was the same. He, he'd lift his hands with his palms out, like, like he's looking for the Lord to put something in his hands. So he, he, he's, Or he's lifting up his junk. You know, I know in my life, I, I felt like at one time uh, in, a, in a little single-wide trailer, I was just lifting up a bunch of broken pieces, and I was offering them to God. Lord, this is, this is my life. It's all shattered, all broken. I don't even begin to know how to put it back together. But it's yours. And so here, the the lamenter, the one crying out, saying, let us lift our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. That's the opposite of pointing out all the problems everyone else has. Drives me crazy. I catch myself doing it too. You know, and we see different things on the news. Here's a prime example. Antifa burns the world because of the things that happened to George Floyd, and then uh, the right uh, charges the Capitol and goes into the Capitol building, and the first thing uh, one side says to the other, well, you did it first. Yeah? So that works when your children say that? You know, when... When you're disciplining your children and they say, well, oh, dad, my brother did it first. Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> Maybe I'll whoop your brother first, but you're in line too. <laughs> so the same, the same thing, right? We want to uh, have an attitude, not blame shifting, but lifting our hearts to the Lord, turning our attention back to the Lord. This is the call that he gives us. Why? Because we want to be pardoned, right? We want to be pardoned by a holy God. Verse 42, he says, we have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. That ought to be a sobering verse. Now what the poem means is you haven't taken away our consequences. And unfortunately, that's just a reality, right? Some choices we make, the consequences stay with us. If the Lord had not delivered me from HIV, I would have died of AIDS. That's a consequence. I had no right to expect it to happen. I had no right to expect healing. I had no right to expect any of that. Uh, the consequences, no right to think my consequence would change. And while I may call upon the name of the Lord and he may forgive me, I'm still a slave here going to Babylon, right? My slavery hasn't ended. The city doesn't stop burning. The walls that fall down don't pop back up, right? So he's saying, this is what we want. We want To be, we want to be forgiven. So they're calling guilt. We transgress. To transgress means you knew where the line was and you stepped over it on purpose. That's really how most of us sin, isn't it? We know what sin is. We know what we ought not to do and we do it anyway. And we rebelled against God. And so they're saying, We have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger. And pursued us, killing without pity, you have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. Now, I had a question as I was putting this together, what if what in us makes us think God has to forgive? Why do we think that? Oftentimes the Lord says, "Have you repent?" He'll say it right through the prophets. Tell the people, if they'll repent, I'll relent, right? I'll I'll turn from the purposes that I have planned. Numbers 14, um, we see the children of Israel coming to Kadesh Barnea. We talked about this in our Hebrew study. And and, uh, it says that the Lord said, then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. He's talking to Moses, but truly as I live, And as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt, in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice will see the land I swore to their fathers. So you hear what the Lord says. Okay, I have pardoned. I forgive you, but you're not entering the land. The consequence remains. You get what I'm saying? So the children of Israel, they come to the promised land. They send out spies, two spies. Joshua and Caleb come back, say, we can do it. God's with us, right? He's been with us all this time. Ten spies come back and they say, oh, nope. There's no way there's giants in the land. They're going to swallow us like bugs. The people believe the ten spies. They say, we won't go. So God says, then fine. Then Moses prays to the Lord. He intercedes on behalf of the people. Right? And the Lord says, I have pardoned. Is God going to take care of them for 40 years? Yep. So you're still going to give them manna? Yep. What about water? Yep. Are their shoes going to wear out? Nope. Are they going to have diseases come upon them? Nope. The Lord's going to watch over and keep them. But every one of those guys from age 20 and up will die in the desert. And when their children are grown, he's going to come back. And this time, they're going to go. And Verse 39 in Numbers 14, it says, so when Moses told these words to the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly and they rose early in the morning and they went to the heights of the hill country and they said, here we are, we're ready to go, we have sinned, we're sorry. And the Lord said, that's nice, you're not going in. And they walked in the desert for 40 years their sin was forgiven, the consequence remained. You're not going in the land. The children of Israel crying out with, through the voice of Jeremiah and the lamentations are saying, Lord, you haven't forgiven us. No, you're going. You're going to Babylon. That's, your, that's the judgment. That's what's, that's what's going to happen. So the Lord says, make a life there. Live. Don't diminish, right? We talked about that last time. Increase, don't diminish. Pray for the king of Babylon. Pray for the peace of the city, for in their peace, you'll find peace. But it's too late to say, well, Lord, I'm sorry. Well, okay. Yeah, I'm I'm not going to, to snuff you out and cast you into hell. But you're not going in. Hebrews 12, 15 says this. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And then we're given an example of it. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he had, uh, for he saw, he found no chance to repent, though he saw it with tears. Now, the "it" that Esau is seeking probably refers to the blessing, but the point is the same. After Esau made the choice, right, to sell his birthright for a bowl of beans he realized i don't know if i want to do that after his father had given the blessing to his son there was a he spoke prophetically over his son there was no taking that back it was done it was gone and and you may want you may weep over the blessing you may weep and say i want the blessing i want to be the one who's there but that's not how it worked that's not how it happened. We have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. God does not have to remove the consequences of our choices. Sometimes the Lord says this far, no further. Now the cry of the poem goes on. He says, you have made us scum and garbage among the people. So everybody, it was hard to have be, have a patriotic spirit if your country is conquered. You understand what they're saying? Like we, we on the 4th of July, we're going to be very patriotic. We're going to have flags everywhere and, and sing God bless the USA. And we're going we're gonna to do the things we always do on 4th of July. But it's hard to have a 4th of July if your country has been destroyed and it's being ruled by someone else. And in the, the poetry, saying, we are like garbage. We, have, we don't have anything left. The nation has ceased, has ceased to exist. Look what he says, verse 46. All our enemies open their mouth against us. They use harsh words like Facebook. They have bad things to say, right? Thumbs down, whatever. They have verbal attacks. And then he talks about personal anxiety. Look at verse 47. They open their mouth against us, verse 47, and panic and pitfall have come upon us. Panic. This this fear, this anxiety about the future. Anybody felt that lately? No? None of you guys? Anxiety about the future and what they see. Panic, pitfall have come upon us, devastation and destruction. Destruction. This is, this is what they're seeing. And what they what, what scripture is telling us is this was God's purpose. He brought that on purpose. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't whoops, I wasn't watching, and this happened. No, the Lord said, I did this. I did this. And the people would cry out, How can this be good? Because the judgments of God are right. His judgments are right. None of us like it. I don't ever remember my children coming to me after discipline and saying, you know, Dad, I thank you for that. That was really good. It's really straightened out my attitude. And and uh, I'm so thankful for for your discipline and the decisions that you're making in my life. I'm, I'm really happy about it. Has that ever happened to you? No. Now, now my son in his 30s has gotten closer to that. Gotten closer to that. Thanks for the things you taught me and the things that I learned as a young man growing up. But the reality is, our perspective changes over time, doesn't it? And when we're in the midst of the fire, we're in the midst of of the heartache and the problems and the trials... It's hard to trust the purpose of God. I know the plans that I have toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. That's the purpose behind the pain. That's the purpose that the Lord was laying out before them, and I think that's what he lays out for us. Now, Jeremiah is gonna speak about his own pain because if you can imagine being jeremiah and nobody listens 40 years or let me let me rephrase that's so easy i uh wait i was looking for an opportunity i speaking i'm speaking hyperbolically uh he he is saying the attitude is no one believe. there was a couple of guys in jeremiah's ministry who who were obedient to him and and guys that, that did well from the word of Jeremiah. But the vast majority of the people, they, they turned their back on him. So Jeremiah says, my eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite. I'm crying so hard, I, I don't think I have any more tears left to cry. He says, I'm gonna cry, verse 50, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees For my eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. His weeping is over the fact that the Lord has turned his back. And the people he's sorrowful over are those who have been rejected. They're not those who have been rejected who called out to God and God said, no, I'm not going to. They're the ones who rebelled and rebelled and rejected the word of God, rejected the word of God, rejected the word of God. Now it's all burned down. And Jeremiah is looking at their pain and suffering, realizing nobody had to be there. All you had to do was accept God's judgment and go where he said. There was a period of time in my children's life where beatings never had to be quite like I would describe them. One of the requirements was to Submit. You did this wrong. I'm going to spank you. Put your hands here. Accept the position. And I will swing the belt one time. It only ever had to be one. Sometimes it was more than one. So most of the time, it was Kathy swinging like a <laughs> Babe Ruth. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Kathy was not one to say wait till your father gets home she was like get yourself over there on that couch she was the paddle maker in the family so but the idea right submit to submit to judgment uh, but the people didn't and so their rebellion made the situation worse listen Jeremiah goes on I've been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemy without cause. I'm trying to help them, but they hated me. Uh, verse 53, they flung me alive into the pit. You remember when they put Jeremiah in the pit? They cast stones on me. Water closed over my head, and I said, I am lost. Felt like he was drowning. Anybody ever felt like that? Right? Like in the circumstances of life, it felt like I was I was drowning. The the, the sorrow, the pain that he's feeling. And the suffering that was happening, not only to the people that he tried to help, but then also that were coming back upon him from the very ones he's trying to help. Verse 55, he says, So I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. Isn't that exactly what we were talking about? When does man lift up his head? From the pit. It's not very often from the mountaintop. On the mountaintop, everything's good, everything's smooth, nothing's wrong. Nobody's struggling, everybody's happy. It's when the doctor says cancer. It's when a tragedy strikes. It's when something horrific goes on. And now all of a sudden, our ears are perked, our eyes are lifted, and we're shaking a fist, maybe at a God we haven't talked to for years and years. Why did you let this happen, Lord? He says, so from the pit, I called on your name from the depths of the pit. It's from the pits we cry out to God. He says, and you heard my plea. He does not close his ear to the cry of help from people in the pit. It doesn't mean you get out of the pit. But it does mean the Lord hears you and you will have his presence. What's the, what is the lesson that the presence is what you need? You think what you need is someone to pull you out of the mud. You think what you need is someone to make all the pain go away. And so in our world, people run to and fro trying to medicate themselves out of pain. So we drink ourselves into oblivion, or we take drugs, or we, we delve into different worlds so we can forget the struggle and the things that are going on around us, we're self-medicating a million different ways because we don't think what we need is the presence of God. But what God is teaching his people is, my presence is all you need. You can be in chains as a slave in the middle of a country that speaks a language you don't understand. You can have nothing, not one penny, But if you have me, like the psalmist said, you have everything you're going to need. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Why? Because your presence is all I need. It's learning the truth about the presence of God. He says, do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You hear it? He didn't say you lifted me up out of the pit. Now there are times God lifts people out of the pit, right? For sure, for sure. I'm not saying God never will deliver you out of your troubles. He does. But that's not a requirement. A lot of times a lot of people will come and they'll they'll run to the Lord and they'll you'll be going through a particular tragedy in their life and they'll Come to me and they'll say, Jackie, Jackie, oh my gosh, my life is all upside down. I really need to get right with the Lord. And what they're really saying is, I I want to change the circumstances of my life. And so if I come to church and I go to Bible study, will that all change? Maybe. Maybe not. All you really need is the presence of the Lord but I want all this other, I know, I understand that. I think God does too, but is that what you need? He's, he's saying here, look, you drew near when I called on you and you said to me in the bottom of the pit, do not fear. How's the rest of that verse go? I am with you. Do not be afraid or dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. His presence. His presence. If we can find, if we can tap into the beauty of God's presence in our circumstance, wherever we are, then no matter how much our circumstances, circumstances change in the future, none of it will derail us because we have everything we need already. And now you're able to focus on hearing from the Lord, being directed by God in those circumstances to meet the needs that are going on around you instead of scrambling and shaking a fist at heaven and saying, What in the world just happened? A lot of times the Lord is trying to get us to understand that's what we need his presence. Look what he says in verse 58. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. Now, in my opinion, the poet is still speaking from the pit. So from the pit, he cried out. God heard him. He came to the pit. He felt his presence come near to him and tell him, don't be afraid. And in that experience with the presence of God in the bottom of the pit with the water covering over his head, he's saying, you have taken up my cause you have redeemed my life. My life only makes sense in submission and surrender to God. Nothing else makes sense. I've tried it all. I've tried to find it in a lot of different places in a lot of different ways. And in surrender to God, accepting whatever the Lord brings into my life, I was... I, I... I am a wretch, and I surrendered my life to Christ, and I began to walk with Him, and I began to spend time serving in ministry, and and God started to use my testimony, and people were getting saved, and God was doing a lot of incredible things around me, and my wife got pregnant, and I said for the first time, I'm gonna I'm gonna name my son a name out of the Bible because I want my son to honor the Lord, and. And I want him to understand what it is to, to be a servant of God. That's Joe. So I, I sat in my backyard and I was like, Lord, what's going on? I finally am doing what I'm supposed to be doing and walking where I'm supposed to walk. And, and you give me an autistic son? Now, at the time, I didn't know what I know now. What I know now is I have learned more about my relationship with God through Joe's relationship with me than any books, any study, help program, any Bible college class. Way more I learned through my relationship with him. I remember when he was, <clears throat> when he was really little, he didn't talk for Ever. And so he's, he's little, and I just want to know what his voice sounds like. Now, look, I knew his voice because he screamed all the time. So, But I didn't want to hear a scream. I didn't want to hear, ah, all the time. I just wanted to hear him jump up in my lap one day and say, hey, Dad. That's, that's all I wanted. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, Lord, I, I really don't understand what you're doing here. And I... Just hear him whisper. Yeah, Jackie, sometimes that's all I want from you too. We catch ourselves throwing a fit, shaking our fists, screaming. And God says, I wonder what it would be like if you just jumped up in my lap. What would it be like if you just Said, "Hey, love you, Dad." So I learned a lot from that thing that I thought was not good. Now those lessons are still coming. <laughs> Joe's twenty-four years old. We have a new set of problems. So, so and those and and those things will continue. And I know now I didn't. I, didn't, I wasn't going to find my fulfillment in a son that I could show the way from birth. I will have my fulfillment in God's presence and being the man God calls me to be to all my children and to walk the path that God has laid out for us to walk. And so in that, just like the poet, we can cry out, you have taken up my cause. I didn't know you were doing this for my good. Now I see a little bit. You have redeemed my life. Then he says in verse 59, you have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. So again, I still, I still see the poet in the pit. I still see him, you know, whether it's a pit of despair, you know, I'm not saying he's stuck down in the mud, but the, 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 the attitude, look, you, you see where I'm at. You see what they've done to me. You see the wrong that has occurred. You have seen all their vengeance and all their plots. Isn't that really how Jeremiah's life was? I have a hard time with people who say, I don't think Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. I mean, you, have you read it? Because it pretty much follows Jeremiah's example of his life. They hunted him, threw him in pits, threw him in prisons, shackled him, tied him up, beat him up, tried to kill him. You know, they, they tried to do it all. <clears throat> He's saying, Lord, you've seen it all. You have taken up my cause, you have redeemed my life, and you see all the wrong done to me. But I don't want you to miss this. It's like he's, he's, in a moment he's going to talk about the scoffing of the enemy, and he's, gonna, he's, gonna, he's going to take, I think he's going to take his desire for vengeance on all those who have wronged him, and he's going to lay it in God's hands. Because the Bible says don't give way to wrath, For the Lord says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. The Bible tells us the wrath of men will not accomplish the righteousness of God. So your wrath is not ever going to do anything good. So he says, the the writer, the poet, I think, is is taking his desire for vengeance, and he's going to say, Get him, God. But when he's saying, Get him, God, I see him laying that down, laying it down at the feet of the Lord, and that's yours now. That's that's yours to judge. You're the judge of all the world, not me. You're the judge of all this stuff. I'm I'm gonna leave this with you. He says in 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 verse sixty one, You heard their taunts, O Lord. All their plots, the lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting, they're resting. I am the object of their taunts. So you will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of your hands. You will repay them. You will give them dullness of heart and your curse will be upon them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. There's a warning there, right? Because the scripture talks about a believer neglecting his salvation and drifting and that drifting will lead to dullness of hearing and dullness of hearing leads to rebellion, rejection and judgment. So the author says, today is the day Israel is judged, Judah is judged, Jerusalem is destroyed, but that day will come for everyone under the stars, every nation. Look, the, the, the prophet Daniel was clear. When Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, there was no earthly kingdom that lasted. The head of gold became a chest of silver, chest of silver became The the waste of bronze gave way to iron, gave way to iron mixed with clay until the rock that came from the heavens, not cut out by hand, struck the statue in its feet, destroyed all the kingdoms of men, grew itself into a mountain and became the kingdom of God that filled the whole earth. It's only one eternal kingdom. All those kingdoms will be judged. All those kingdoms will stand in that place And here, I I think the poet is just laying it down. He's like, okay, Lord, I want vengeance. I want them destroyed. I see them all go through the same thing I have, but I'm gonna give it to you. You will repay according to the work of their hands. You be God, and I'm just gonna be me. I seen the job, and I don't think I can do it. I'm okay with letting it be In your hands. It is a good thing. To find in our search for answers. The reality that. The thing we're missing. And the thing we're needing. Is God's presence all along. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand with me. Let's pray. Father God I thank you for this time. The opportunity that we have to come before You, Lord, to study Your Word. God, I pray that we might find uh, good soil in our heart to receive it, Lord, to hear it, to see it, that we might be conformed to Your Word and not the other way around. Lord, I pray that we might learn the lesson of those who have gone before us and and suffered and Dealt with life, and that we might recognize, this is how this is how man is. It's what we do. It's what we have always done. We are unjust, wrathful, oppressive creatures, and sometimes we have done that in your name, God. And for that, we we stand ready for judgment. Lord, I pray that you would teach us each one that the thing we need most in life is your presence. You with us, guiding, leading, directing. Lord, that we might glorify you in the attitudes that we have and the life we live, God. As we put our Focus on you as we put our hope on you, Lord. I pray that you would bring your perfect deliverance and we would find our hope is in you and not in all the other things we may cling to or or run to, Lord. Be glorified as we seek to honor you as we live out our life, Lord. May we put our eyes upon you May we magnify the Lord in our life, in our choices, in the directions that we take. May we choose a life, surrendered to you. Because that is the only place it will all make sense. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.